today in uh, some Christian traditions is known as the celebration of Christ the King. And uh, that's something that uh, perhaps we nonconformists don't uh, tend to celebrate or look at. Uh, but in the build-up to Advent, I think it's very interesting that today would be earmarked as a celebration of this fact. And it's fascinating to me because just last Sunday, of course, we were asking the question, is God king of our hearts? Is he the one who is the boss? And we started to unpack that a bit. We started to look at uh, Jesus. We asked the question, is he our first love? Is he the most important person in our lives? Because we started to understand, I think, that Jesus really is the only one who can fill, fulfill the role of being king in your life. Anyone or anything else that you put in place of Jesus, I think we would all say is guaranteed to actually disappoint hugely. Now, do you remember how we looked back at the story of King Saul last Sunday night? Those of you who were here, I hope you do, because that's what we did. And uh, you'll remember that the people of Israel had chosen a human king. Everybody else around them was doing this. So they thought themselves, well, yeah, we'll have a human king as well. That'll be good. They desperately wanted one. And things got off to an awesome start. Saul arrives on the scene. He wins some epic battles. He goes around doing his Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation. And everybody thinks he's fantastic. And uh, the people respond. They, they basically fall in love with the guy. They think he's absolutely amazing. And you can, you can imagine, can't you? You know, you are king when things are going that well. It's pretty cool. Everything was hunky-dory. Everything that you put your hand to worked and was successful. The question then arises, what happens when things don't go well? What happens when you hit a tough spot? When stuff hits the fan? What then? One thing's for certain, who we serve becomes unmistakable. Who our allegiances are with becomes as clear as day. For King Saul and for the Israelites, things are about to get really, really difficult. Now, you'll probably know that the people of Israel had a, a huge rivalry with another group of people known as the Philistines. Remember the whole David and Goliath thing, yeah? So Goliath was a Philistine hero and all of that. And um, the animosity that there was between these two nations was, you know, as bad as you can imagine. I know Liverpool fans don't like Man United fans and Cardiff Blues don't like Ospreys and Coke doesn't like Pepsi and Apple Macintosh doesn't like Microsoft and Costas are against Starbucks, Playstations against Xbox. You've got all these rivalries in society. And this was a rivalry between the Philistines and the Israelites. And uh, there are absolute loggerheads, one with the other. In truth, the Philistine army was far more advanced than the Israelite army. They should have pummeled them. That's the truth. Um, but the game changer was that Israel, of course, had a secret weapon. They had God on their side. And God plus anyone equals 
well, it makes for an unbelievable and unbeatable tag team. So that's what we see being lived out in Scripture. Now, like any good uh, rivalry, it doesn't take much to ignite the fire between the two sides. And one day, we read earlier in Scripture that Saul's son, Jonathan, decided to uh, reignite the rivalry and attack the Philistines. And when he did that, it was like poking a sleeping bear. And the Philistines woke up and they were angry. And that's where we picked things up this evening. If you've got a Bible, and there is one at the end of every pew, why don't you open it to 1 Samuel chapter 13? If you've got a, an app on your phone, maybe follow it that way. This is an incredible little passage of Scripture that I think uh, deserves our attention this evening. This is a, a, a portion of Scripture that will help us understand more about Christ the King, God as King. So 1 Samuel 13, we pick things up in verse 5, and you remember there that we read, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. Now that's near Bathaven. Uh, you know that? So when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves, in thickets, among the rocks, in pits, in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gilead. Now, you can imagine the scene, can't you? You know, Saul's looking out over the cliff and he's seeing the Philistines gathering down below. And he says to his young apprentice, Tim Moody, he says, you count them. And you can imagine the young apprentice going, one, two, three, four, five, six billion, nine billion. It's infinitesimal. He cannot arrive at a, at a figure. The, the sense here is that it is such a vast army, you're looking down on this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we are in trouble. And it is an amazingly grave situation. In, in fact, you see that the response of the Israelites is, Scarpa, let's run, let's get out of here. And they hide. They hide in ditches, under rocks. They go to their grandparents. They hide under the bed. You know, they, they go wherever they can. And it's a desperate situation because they are paralyzed with fear. It seems to me that some soldiers were just running aimlessly. It says there some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. King Saul has suddenly hit his rough spot. This is not a glorious moment for him. And right now, in this very moment in time, who Saul trusts will become incredibly evident. And that's the point. When the chips are down, who you follow, who's important to you, who guides your life, will come to the fore. And here is such a point. This is war. They're outnumbered. They're petrified. 
So what is Saul's response? And what's our response when the chips are down? When we're maybe facing things that are beyond us? We're in difficult circumstances. We've had a health scare that you know, it's way beyond anything we've ever experienced before. We, we have relationship breakdown in our families. We've never seen anything as close-hand as that before. Maybe our, our job is, is under threat and we, we worry about, well, how are we going to make ends meet? What do we do when all in the garden is not nice and rosy? When things are difficult? when the consequences are squeezing in on us. Because the one thing that we can know for sure is this, who we rely on, who we trust, where our allegiances lie, will really come to the fore in those times. So the heat's on. You turn to the passage, you see the pressure's mounting, things get more and more difficult for Saul. Who he trusts is going to be crucial for how this is going to play out. And here's something we need to know. Uh, Saul and the prophet Samuel had a deal. Do you remember how I said last week that uh, the prophet was God's spokesperson? Uh, if you wanted to hear from God, you went to the prophet. That's who you had to go to so that God would be able to speak into the situation. Well, the king and the prophet had a deal. And the deal that they had was that Saul would wait seven days before hearing from God as to whether or not he should go into battle with the Philistines. And the reason that this was happening, this deal had been struck, was because whatever was going to happen, the important thing for Saul and for everybody else to remember was this. This wasn't a battle about military might or about military tactics this wasn't so much about those sorts of things at all. No, no. This was a battle about God and his people versus everybody else. Remember what I said earlier? The greatest tag team you can have is God plus you. So God plus you. That's the critical thing here. Was God going to lead the nation into battle against these Philistines? This is all about God's sovereignty. What is God wanting the response to be in this situation? For Saul and for Israel, it's vital that God speaks, that God takes action, that God tells them what to do. It's God who's going to bring victory. King Saul must wait seven days. How are you at waiting? You any good at waiting? Christmas is coming. We'll find out how good some of the children are at waiting, won't we? Stories abound in our household of children searching for presents. Regan was telling me the other day, he used to go and try and find where his mam had stuffed presents and stuff, and he'd open them, and then drop clues during the weeks leading up to Christmas that he was... Yes, very appreciative of such and such, but hope to goodness that she hadn't bought him such and such. Ah, waiting is hard. Saul discovers it's hard. People are yelling at him. The blinking Philistines are amassing Saul. Look at them. 
There's too many here. We're outnumbered. Half the guys have already scarpered. The other half are threatening to. What can we do? No, no, no. We've got to wait for God. We have to wait for God to speak. Now, you could imagine after three days, they'd be getting a bit fed up of that. By day four, by day five, well, people were yelling at him, questioning his intelligence, calling him a wimp for not fighting. Saul's losing people, left, right, and center. Not only on the battlefield, but on Instagram, people are closing down their accounts, they're defriending him on Facebook. It's all going pear-shaped. And finally, well, finally, we get this, don't we? We get this, of course we do. Finally, he caves in. He caves into the pressure, and rather than waiting for God's guidance, rather than waiting for God's instruction, rather than trust that God will speak and bring clarity, Saul chooses to resolve the situation himself. He's going to tackle this tough circumstance himself. He gets all Frank Sinatra, doesn't he, and says, I'm going to have to do this my way. And we get that. Because the reality is, in all of our lives, we've been there. Maybe not at war, but at different points in our lives, with different circumstances. Blinking like you may well be at this point right now. You've been waiting for God. But there's nothing coming. And you just feel, I'll have to do it myself. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. The passage is absolutely brilliant. I think it's like a scene out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Saul caves into the pressure. He makes a sacrifice himself, which is the signal that God, you know, had decided to declare war and it guarantees victory. And of course, God hadn't spoken at all. And just as he makes his decision and his troops run out to fight the Philistines, Saul looks up and he sees Samuel. Awkward. They catch each other's eyes. And Samuel says to Saul, What have you done, you plonker Rodney? And the response is priceless. The response is priceless. He says to him, When I saw the men that were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, well, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You see what he does? When Saul's confronted with the fact that he has sinned, he blames everybody else, he tries to excuse himself, and he tries to justify his actions. It's an amazing little passage. When I saw the man, remember now, he's blaming, he's excusing, and he's justifying. When I saw that the men were scattering, that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt sacrifice. Saul takes things into his own hands. He absolutely, utterly, and totally believed that he could do things and sort things his own way. And as I said, we, we get that. I, I know I do. Because in a tight spot, relationships strained, 
There's that email your colleague sent through on Friday, and tomorrow morning you're going to let him have a taste of what you think. Examples, we could just keep the examples coming, because there are times when all of us utterly and totally believe that we have to take action ourselves. You know what the Bible calls that? Sin. That's what the Bible calls that, sin. That's the root of all sin. At its root, sin is when our hearts believe, I can sort this. I can sort this my way. And that's what's going on here, isn't it? As you look at Saul, as you see what he does when the chips are down, when things are fraught and difficult, it's his sin that keeps him from following God wholeheartedly. I can do this. I can resolve this better my way. I'm not waiting anymore for God. Now let's take a moment and look at how Saul responded when he was confronted about his sin and see if we can relate to that as well. I mean, the blame game is an interesting one. Look closely at the passage. There in those verses, it's all there for us to see. He's basically saying, well, look, God didn't respond like I thought he would. Or better still, I think he's actually saying, well, God didn't respond like I wanted him to. I had to do something. Been there? In your heart of hearts, have you ever blamed God for not responding to your needs the way that you wanted him to? Have you ever blamed God for not responding the way you wanted him to in your family? Maybe you've asked him to save your son's marriage or, or fix the problems with your siblings. Maybe you've asked God to heal somebody that you care deeply about, but, but he hasn't. Maybe they died. And you blame God. You ever blamed God for not enabling you to get a better job? In these scenarios of blame, maybe you responded by taking the matter into your own hands. Some people are done with God. They walk out the door. Some people drown their sorrows in drink, drugs, some people decide to do other things, bully their way through to get the job they want. God's not helping. Do we honestly think that it's God's fault? Why blame him? The scripture reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, those lovely verses my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We're not created to explain God. We're created to trust him. That was Saul's fundamental problem. He didn't trust God. Seven days you've got to wait. Just seven days. God will give you the answer whether to go and fight these Philistines. But he was so impatient. And so he lets rip. 
blames. The second thing you see him doing is that he excuses. Go back to these verses again. I mean, the situation, he's basically saying, was too tough. That's how he excuses his actions. Oh, when I saw that the men were scattering, and you didn't come, did you, at the set time? The Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, well, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and, and I've not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled. I had to offer the burnt offering. There's the excuse. It's there. As I was writing this this week, I thought to myself, do I have sin in my life that I excuse? And I want to ask you the same question. Do you have sin in your life that you try to excuse? Saul excused his sin to Samuel. Well, the circumstances were so overwhelming, Samuel, for goodness sake. The interesting thing is the overwhelming circumstances are even more of a reason to turn to God rather than believe you can sort things out yourself. Well, maybe you think that you can't get the promotion that you deserve without bursting some other people's balloons on the way. Maybe you've said things like, well, because of the situation I was in, I, I had no choice. I had to lie. It's all blamed. Blamed. God blamed Samuel blamed, blamed everybody else. He, he excused his sin as well when confronted about it. But then look finally at what he does. He tries to justify. To justify himself. He's almost saying in this passage, oh, blinking heck, Samuel, I've got good reason. I've got good reason for my sin. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come down at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I thought, well, blinking heck, the Philistines will come down now against me at Gilgal and, and I've not sought the Lord's favour. I felt, I felt compelled. I had to offer the Lord's sacrifice. I did. I had to do it. Have you ever said anything like that? As I sat in my study this week, I asked myself, do I try to justify my sin? Have I got good reasons why there might be sin in my life? To justify is to give reasons as to why our sin is okay. And interestingly, so often linked to justifying sin is compromise. To settle for a a standard that we know doesn't fully meet with God's expectations. We justify our sin and we compromise our decisions. So we need to ask ourselves tonight, are there things that the Holy Spirit is highlighting in our hearts right now? As we look at Saul blaming God, full of excuses, trying to justify himself because of the circumstances. Honestly, as you sit there tonight, as I stand here tonight, is God bringing conviction? Is there something right now that you're aware of in your own life that needs to be sorted before you leave here? Are there areas where you've blamed God and everyone else 
Areas where you've been full of excuses or maybe you've just tried so hard to justify why you did what you did, why you said what you said, why you behaved the way you behaved. And right now, God's saying to you, whoa, 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 hang on. I wonder how receptive we are when the Holy Spirit does things like that. Because it's tough, isn't it? Do we confess that now, tonight? Or are you going to sit there and blame everybody else? Are you going to sit there and just try and excuse yourself? Justify what you did. Saul? Saul did exactly that. He blamed, he excused, he justified. And as a result, do you remember what Samuel said to him? You've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Samuel tells Saul, it would have been so much better if you trusted God, pal. Because sin has consequences. Whether or not we want to believe that, it's true. Sin does affect our lives and our pursuit of Jesus. No matter how much we want to rationalize that or belittle it, if we want to follow God wholeheartedly, we need to be willing to confess our sin. And when I think of being confronted about my sin, I think of many different moments, in all honesty. You know, I, I'm grateful to God. As I sat in my study this week, I contemplated that moment when first I received Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Saviour. Amen. Wonderful. But I also thought, thought about many other moments in my life. But I was hard-hearted because of my stubbornness. I didn't grow in my faith because I was so busy blaming other people, justifying my behaviour. And yet I also remembered those times when I had come before God and I had confessed my sin. And I've got to say to you, my experience is that God has used that to catapult me forward in my relationship with him. It's that beautiful verse, isn't there, in Proverbs 28. Do you remember this verse? Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. The devil doesn't want you to hear that tonight, you know. He wants you to think that your sin will bring you life. What's wrong with what you're doing, for goodness sake? Get on with life. Do what you can. He wants you to think that you can keep it to yourself. It'll be fine. Follow Jesus by doing things your way. Come to chapel on a Sunday, do a little bit of God's way. Hey, it's fine. But God says, as we saw last week and as we're seeing again tonight, sin will actually take stuff away from you. It won't give you anything. It'll take from your soul. It will take from your heart. It will take from your joy. It will rob you of so much. The Bible says the devil comes to kill, to steal, to destroy what do we see this morning? Jesus has come to give us life. Life in abundance. Some of us here tonight have never put our faith in Jesus. 
But I want to tell you, that's all you need to do to begin this life with him. Others of us, we are children of God, but we're, we're not experiencing many of the benefits of being in the family of God at the moment because the devil's robbing us of all that Christ offers us because there's unconfessed stuff in our lives. And some of us are very aware of that right now. It's nothing because of what I've said. It's because the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction. And we can be apathetic with Jesus we might have forgotten that our relationship with him is actually based on forgiveness and grace and not what's considered good Christian action. When it comes to following Christ, when it comes to the Spirit working in us to make us more like Jesus, we can't begin to experience that abundance of life a life filled with joy and peace and fulfillment and healing and power and restoration and forgiveness without first confessing our sins. And I don't know about some of you older ones here tonight, but as I get older, I find that the more mature I'm becoming in Christ, the more I'm acknowledging and confessing my sin. Because I'm so much more aware of it. confess our sin is to acknowledge that there is sin and that we need to get rid of it. It's to invite the Spirit of God to rule our heart and change whatever he needs to change so that Jesus can continue to be our first love. So if there's an area of your life tonight that God's bringing to your attention that your first inclination is to do a soul with, to blame, to excuse, to justify. I want to plead with you, don't let the devil rob you of joy tonight, of healing, of restoration. Maybe tonight is the time when you just need to be honest with God, open up to him, give him your heart, and just invite him in. This isn't about guilt or judgment this is about knowing that when we confess our sins, we get to experience life in its abundance. Let's take a moment, shall we, in quietness to respond to God. The example of Saul is a very poignant one. He mucked up. He preempted God. Thought he could do things his own way. Sort stuff out. But he couldn't. He didn't have all the answers. 